check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. Welcome, one and all, to the Gridiron Heroics Football Show. My name is Max Dean. You can find me on Twitter at TheMaxDean. And today I have another fantastic show for you. Of course, we are doing the AFC South. We're more than halfway through our divisional preview series. Only one more week. We're going to be touching on the West teams coming up. But today is the AFC South. We're talking about a division that maybe people have some lower expectations for that might just be exceeded. We're going to talk about all of the teams and their pathways for success. You know, I don't know if that's always talked about with the AFC South. So I wanted to really make a point of digging in on that. Now, before I do, I have not a brand new guest, but a new news anchor for our tidbits section. We have Dave Guberman. Dave, how are you doing today? I'm good, Max. Thanks for having me on. I'm ready to hop in, kind of talk about the breaking news and the topics we got going around the league over the past few days. So I'm, re- I'm ready to go. Beautiful. I appreciate you stepping in and taking over in Julius's absence. You know, for those of you who've been listening, you know that he is currently en route from Florida to New York to get in for grad school. So best of luck to him. We'll have him back on coming on Wednesday, but he did need a day off traveling. I decided not to make him record from his car. So appreciate you, Dave. Anytime. Happy to step in. Okay. So let's jump right in. We have some seriously big time news. Maybe the single biggest news of this entire offseason to kick things off. So what do you have for me? All right. So as of today, we actually have the um, agreement that's been reached between the NFL and the NFL PA on the Deshaun Watson case that's um, with the Cleveland Browns that's been spiraling and going on over the past several months. I know the Cleveland Browns have been wanting to have some clarity and some kind of a pathway forward um, to have that finalized. So they've agreed to an 11-game suspension for Deshaun Watson. Um, I know that Deshaun wanted that six-game suspension. The league wanted a full season or an indefinite suspension, so they compromised on an 11-game suspension. So how do you see this um, kind of shaking up the AFC North, or how do you see this impacting the Browns' season this season? Well, you know, first I want to touch on Deshaun Watson and what his actual punishment was, because one of the big issues with a six-game suspension or anything less than a season is that there was really no financial penalty for him. Because the way his contract was structured, and we, we mentioned this before, he got such a large signing bonus, which was protected from loss during suspension, that what his actual seasonal paragraph five salary was, is only just over a million dollars. So whatever he missed is, you know, pocket change compared to what his, his full year salary is. So in order to bridge the gap between going a full season and thus affecting his earning potential next year and uh, a short uh, halfway half season, I guess you could call it suspension this year and effectively having no impact on his finances, they did a little over half, and they also fined him $5 million. So this was a way to impact his pocketbook, so to speak, and and make that punishment actually mean something. Now, personally, I'm a little torn about how I feel about this. I I think the one thing that people don't realize about a full season suspension for him is that that would cost him 40, pretty much 45 or $46 million next year in earning potential. Because the way his contract would toll means that 
he would earn his salary from this year next year, which, like I said, is only a million dollars. And that means all 46 million of his money next year would get pushed into the year after that. And so even though he would, of course, be getting paid corresponding to how much he played, that's an entire year of earning potential for him. And that that's like financially pretty devastating. So I think that's why there was such a fight from the NFLPA to make sure that he didn't go out for a full season. But that's kind of the background on why both sides were fighting so adamantly over this, right? Now, the Browns, they are probably very grateful on one hand that he's not out for the entire season because if they are still playoff relevant by week 13, then it means that they get their starting quarterback, you know, back on the field and probably a much better opportunity to be competitive in the playoffs, you know, and in December football. But on the other hand, financially, and I won't dive into this too much right now, it's it's pretty tough for them if for some reason they are not relevant by the time he gets back. That's pretty brutal, honestly, the way that it affects their cap. It's it's, it's disappointing to say the least for them. So they got to hope that Jacoby Brissett works out. How do you feel about this? We haven't really talked about this since you haven't been on the news. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, like you said, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, people have a bunch of different opinions on it. I know that, like you said, that $5 million fine that he got from the NFL, which I know was very important to the league, that's all going to go to charity as well. That's one of the terms right. of their agree- of the, of their agreement. Um, and I think that the Browns definitely wanted, like I said before, they wanted to have some clarity moving forward and kind of know their quarterback situation going into this season. And I know that they're not happy about losing Deshaun for – 11 of those 17 games, but they are going to get him back. Um, and they are going to have him back for half of their divisional games. So they're he's going to have one game against the Steelers, one game against the Bengals and one game against the Ravens. So like you said, Max, if they are in somewhat of contention around week 12, week 13, then they may actually have a chance to push for the playoffs with those three divisional games remaining. Um, so, I know they're ready to go with Jacoby Brissett, who's been who's been prepping and taking most of the reps in practice to kind of start the season. Um, I know that there are some people talking about whether the Browns are going to make a last ditch effort or make a move to trade for a guy like Jimmy Garoppolo to have him stand in and kind of hold down the fort if Jacoby Brissett can't get it done up until Deshaun Watson can come back around week 13. So because I know they think they have a they have a Super Bowl caliber roster and it's really just comes down to the quarterback. So with that division being tough with the Ravens and the former their last year's AFC champs in the Bengals, I know that they don't really know how their season is going to play out at this point, but I know that they're happy about being able to get him back at least partially through the season and to have him for three of those six crucial divisional matchups down the stretch. Yeah, and and as far as Jimmy Garoppolo goes, I don't think they'll trade for him, but I also don't think anyone's going to trade for him. And I think inevitably he's going to be released in the next few weeks. I think the 49ers are holding out hope that they might get something, but just because of what his salary is, and there's really no reason for him to take a cut because he would probably end up getting more with two teams maybe bidding on him. So I just don't think that it's likely that anyone trades for him. The only team that the Browns would probably have to contend with 
in terms of acquiring him as a free agent might be the Seahawks. And we'll talk about them in just a minute. So if they do go with Garoppolo, I don't expect it to be a trade. But what else do you have for us today? So following that big news of the day, we had yesterday um, Los Angeles Chargers safety Derwin James has agreed to a four-year, $76.4 million extension, which makes him the highest-paid safety in NFL history. So initially, what are your thoughts on that, and kind of how do you, how do you see that impacting him and his progress uh, moving forward into his, into his fifth season? Well, I, it was really a matter of time. I mean, aside from the fact that, you know, it's been known that they were in negotiations, you know, you could even look back the past year or so, and it was kind of like, as long as he stayed healthy, he was going to set the mark because he's so versatile and he's so impactful. And ever since uh, Brandon Staley went over to the Chargers as the head coach, Derwin James has really become the centerpiece of the defense. You know, his ability to match up in coverage with almost any type of player, even slot receivers, tight ends, running backs, you know, he can play the run exceptionally well. He's an incredible athlete and an incredible safety. So I always knew he was going to set the market. Now, I didn't know, you know, last year if he was going to set it and then immediately be outdone by Minka Fitzpatrick or if it was going to be vice versa where Minka went first and Derwin James went after. But I always knew it was going to be those two guys, one after the other, as the new highest one-two in the safety market for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think that um, it's it's tricky because of his injury history. I know that that's kind of the only knock on him. He He really is kind of like you said, he is probably the most versatile safety in the league. He's actually lined up at outside linebacker for 39% of the snaps since he came into the league in 2018. And he's only lined up at safety 36% of the snaps. So the Chargers move him all around the field. He is a dominant force in the run game. He is a dominant force in coverage, and he's a, he's a great tackler as well. The only knock, like I said before, is he's only played in 36 games in his four NFL seasons. So including missing the entire 2020 season with a knee injury, that was the only thing kind of holding back and holding people from thinking that he might get that big deal. But the other thing that I'll say is it does benefit to have a premier quarterback who's still on their rookie contract, which allows the Chargers to pay guys like J.C. Jackson, Khalil Mack in free agency, and now Derwin James and Joey Bosa has also already gotten paid. So they are able to pay those premier defensive players, and they're putting that stock and that investment in the defense while they still have their young Justin Herbert on his rookie deal to hopefully take them to the next step and and kind of do what the Seahawks did with Russell Wilson uh, about 10 years ago. So. Yeah, it doesn't hurt having an all-pro left tackle on a rookie deal either. But they, they, they've they got some very good players at expensive positions on rookie contracts right now, and it's definitely benefited them for the next few years. What else do you have for us today, Dave? So another, contra- maybe not controversial, but but dramatic story from the other day was a fight, a pretty significant fight broke out at Panthers-Patriots joint practice that led to star running back Christian McCaffrey actually getting pushed to the ground. And Dietrich Wise Jr., the defensive end for the Patriots, he actually fell on a fan. So the scuffle actually got pushed into the stands and a woman got injured. Her foot got swollen from this incident. 
So kind of what are you taking from this incident and kind of what happened? Do you see it as something or nothing? Well, um, look, I obviously don't ever want fans getting injured at practice. That's that's hopefully it's a minor injury. Uh, you know, swelling could mean a lot of things. But one person who I can say is definitely not happy with it is head coach Matt Rule, because no matter what they've done throughout their offseason, no matter what they've done on their offensive line, bringing in Baker Mayfield, I don't care about any of that other stuff if Christian McCaffrey is not playing, because he is the key to their offense. When healthy, he is one of the five best offensive players in the NFL non-quarterback, and they need him there. So, I mean, I don't know what to make of it other than they better get that locked down real quick because, you know, they can't be getting this guy injured in practice, especially, you know, an injury is an injury, but coming from a fight, that's just not professional and can't happen. Right. And I know that a lot of these fights do happen and kind of, you know, tensions can run high, especially in the summer heat in these joint practices for sure. So I don't take it as, as I don't put too much stock in it, but yeah, I know that the Panthers are looking to keep McCaffrey healthy this season after a couple of injury riddled seasons. So seeing him kind of get hit to the ground and kind of fall amongst a crowd of players that are, that are scuffling is not something that Matt Rowe wants to see. So that's for sure. Yeah. He's not the biggest guy either, really. So, you know, I don't want him being trod upon by a number of, 320 pound men (laughs) right yeah definitely another storyline we have is actually sixth round rookie tight end for the indianapolis colts unfortunately tore his acl and he is going to miss the remainder of this season i know that he's been a standout in training camp and he's been quietly moving up the depth chart amongst the tight end room in indianapolis so pretty big blow for Indy and kind of their tight end room. So how do you, how do you see this impacting their team or impacting um, kind of as they move forward with that position? Well, you know, I think normally when you hear sixth round rookies expected to miss this season, you think, well, you know, what was he probably going to do anyway? But with a team that is so well built to be a 12 personnel type of team as their, as their foundation, you know, with two tight ends on the field, paving the way for uh, Jonathan Taylor and you know running play action out of that any notable pass catcher at the tight end position is is a loss you know that that he might have ended up having a notable target share especially as the season rolled through you know when you get into November December and you're and you're you know getting those guys some experience so I don't want to say it's devastating by any stretch but it's disappointing for him you know when you think about him as, as a player missing that rookie season and it it certainly doesn't help Right. Yeah, for sure. And I know they're going to be relying a lot more on Mo Alley-Cox as they move forward. And especially with uh, another draft pick, Jelani Woods, might need to pick up some slack from from this injury. So yeah, we'll see how it plays out as we move forward into the Colts season. And I'm sure we might dive into more of that in our AFC South preview. Um, one last story that was from a, from a couple of days ago that impacted tonight's preseason game between the Seahawks and the Bears is Drew Locke actually tested positive for COVID. So he was scratched from what would have been his first start of the preseason tonight against the Bears. Pretty, I don't want to say big blow, but a a bummer and a buzzkill to kind of see what their quarterback situation is going to be and see who is going to take that starting job now that Russell Wilson is in Denver. So 
how do you see the Seahawks kind of managing this preseason game or the next week or so without having Drew Locke due to COVID? Yeah, you know, this is low-key kind of a big deal for them because obviously it's COVID. And at this point in the you know history of COVID, it's probably not going to be any kind of long-term thing for him. But this takes away a really big opportunity for him to solidify his hold on the starting job. At this point, you know, I'm not sure who necessarily played better in that first game. I, we talked about it this past Sunday, and I wasn't particularly impressed with either. But, you know, without his opportunity to prove himself over the veteran Geno Smith, I, I'm i not really sure if they can justify going with him. You know, this might it, this this could potentially go from them going with him as the starter and rolling with him through the season to them now going with Geno Smith as a starter having to pull him due to bad play and insert Drew Locke after not getting starter reps for the beginning of the season. So I don't want to make it out to be a huge deal, especially because most of us don't expect the Seahawks to be really big time contenders, but I don't think that you can outright dismiss it. You know, I think it definitely matters to to the trajectory of his career and potentially the trajectory of their season. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree. Uh, and I think that kind of like al- along the lines of what you were saying, it, it, it's it's a tricky situation because they just added Drew Locke this offseason. A lot kind of the word around the league is the Seahawks know who Geno Smith is. They know what he will be. He's been in that system with that team for a couple of years now. And they were really hoping that Drew Locke would come in and kind of push for that starting job. Mm-hmm. Drew Locke has the higher ceiling. He has the physical tools that some physical tools that Geno Smith doesn't have. So it kind of puts them in a tricky spot to whether they want to go with the experience and Geno Smith and kind of the familiarity that he has with the offense. And it kind of holds up or puts more pressure on them to bring Drew Locke up to speed and kind of have him overtake Geno. So that might become more of a long standing process or might take some more time due to him not being able to get those reps, especially uh, in their second-to-last preseason game tonight. Yeah, especially because now the second-to-last preseason game is usually that dress rehearsal game. It's it's now what that third game used to be, and now the third game is what the fourth game used to be, so probably neither of those quarterbacks is going to see any time in the third game. So it is what it is. They'll have to make their decision and and hope that it works out for the best, but I don't know. I, I can't say that it's it's tantalizing to me but you know for Seahawks fans I'm sure they would have liked to have known all right Dave thanks so much for coming on and helping me out with the news today we are going to be seeing you shortly at the end of the episode to preview the Titans 2022 season so I'm going to let you go here we're going to jump right into the Jacksonville Jaguars and we'll see you again very very soon sounds good thanks again Max All right, as we jump into our very first team preview of the day, I am very pleased to introduce our first ever international guest, Simon Carroll from the UK. He covers the Jaguars for gridironheroics.com as well as Auburn. He has his very own UK-based NFL website, actually his college football as well, and draft content, thetouchdown.co.uk, so you can go check that out and get a little bit of uh, British flavor to your football content. Simon, how are you today? I'm great, Max. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure, truly. I'm, I'm excited to have the first international guest on. It's, uh, it's you know, it's I guess it's a stepping stone for the podcast in, in a way. 
Now, first of all, just before we get into anything, I do have to ask you, how did you originally get into uh, American football? If you can give that to us relatively concisely, because I'm curious. Of course, yeah. So basically started as a university student with uh, no discipline, staying up late in the evening, watching sport, very basically just happened to turn, <laughs> turn the channel on. So I think the first Super Bowl I remember is the probably the um, Patriots Panthers with uh, Adam Vinatieri and the kick. Um, oh, yeah. From there, just snowballed. I got to watch more and more by 2008. I was hooked, like watching the NFL draft from start to finish. I watched every single game I possibly could. Um, it really just took off. And obviously back then in the UK, NFL was still relatively niche. I mean, I guess for you guys, mm-hmm. it probably feels still feels niche now. But for us, it's 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 completely changed now. It's it's crazy over here. You know, we have, we sell out three international series games every year. There's, apparently, there was like eight hundred thousand people in the queue for the for the Packers tickets this season. So it has gone it has gone pretty pretty crazy. There's plenty of different uh, content providers this side of the pond as well, which means so when you say like it's kind of unique to have a guest on, I guess it's different perspective you know it's almost a little bit weird for me to be on an american podcast so but yeah obviously i'm, absolute, <laughs> I'm absolutely obsessed with the sport from start to finish i really am yeah it's uh, to me it's the most fascinating sport out there I, I enjoy all sports there's no sport that i care to sit down and watch you know with a fascination quite like football so but that's great i'm that's it's a fun story so i was i was just curious how you got into it i know that it's grown in the uk quite a bit i mean if you follow you know Along at all, they're pretty much every major outlet, whether it's NFL.com or NFL Network or NBC, they all have a connection with Sky Sports or, or some UK network that provides NFL content because it's just growing so quickly. But let's jump into the Jacksonville Jaguars. I know it's not your favorite team per se, but it is only fitting that you cover the Jaguars considering their UK presence. So just looking at their offseason up to this point, there's been quite a bit of transition, right? They are a team that has been at the bottom of the NFL for a couple of years. The coaching staff was a total disaster last year, whether it was, you know, just one guy or a whole group of them. You know, that's probably up for debate, at least a little bit. It's, it takes a lot for one person to totally ruin everything, but that's kind of the way that it's presented. Now that they've gotten to this year, there's a new coach, a Super Bowl winning coach, and it really does feel like things are different, even if the general manager has been the same. Can you give me who you think would be the two key offseason additions that will impact 2022 the most and be the most influential in the final, hopefully real turnaround for the Jaguars franchise? Yeah, so probably low ambitions for the Jaguars this season. I think they just feel like, like you say, turning the page is, is almost enough. They almost feel like they've succeeded before the season's even started. I would, I think you, you've got to start really with the uh, first overall draft pick, haven't you? To be fair, you know, uh, <laughs> where else, where else can you start? Quite frankly, it was uh, Trayvon Walker, the addition of him with the first overall pick. We, it was a kind of a surprise on draft day when it happened. Um, it slowly but surely built momentum. Trayvon Walker, obviously, out of the University of Georgia, a freak. You know, physically uh, Adonis, essentially, you know, athletically off the scale, but not necessarily mm-hmm. with the stats you were hoping to see. Basically, moving around that Georgia defensive, uh, you know, the, the front seven for, for the Bulldogs, and 
obviously with so many mouths to feed in that Bulldogs defense, maybe his stats were affected a little bit there. Still a little bit of a surprise when he went first overall, but his impact in the preseason, the first two games so far for the Jaguars has been uh, impressive. You know, he's, we saw him in the Hall of Fame game against the Raiders and he has that. He has the power. There's no doubt about it. He he was he was torturing those those uh, t- tackles for the Raiders uh, that, that night. Um, he was bull rushing them. Didn't really see so much nuance. You know, uh, he, had, he still had to bring some pass rush moves maybe to the table. But um, the second game against the Browns, much improved already. He's already had a sack. He's already you know been a part of a forced fumble. I think. People are very excited for what he can provide. They were nervous at first, of course, you know, with uh, Trent Bulky uh, calling the shots in that front office. I don't think they've got much faith in his ability to build a roster. But And they were nervous about what he brought to the table. But I think from the first couple of weeks of preseason, they are high on him. Um, difficult to find at the second one. Um, I might stick with the draft again. I know they've added some pieces in terms of free agency as well. But uh, a guy they drafted in the third round, Luke Fortner, a centre, from uh, Kentucky. He's um he's projected to be a starter already on this offensive line. Now, for the Jaguars, offensive line's always been a bit of a problem, maybe for the past five or six years. It's just never seemed to come together quite how they wanted it to. Tyler Shatley had that job last year um, and wasn't certainly wasn't the worst on that line, but it's, it's definitely an upgrade. He's uh, come in, he's immediately taken that job as Luke Fortner. Uh, quite a physical guy. He went to the senior bowl last year and um, after maybe a, a Trying to, a couple of aches and pains got up against the best of the best. Soon found his found his level, and he's done the same in training camp here too. So, what he's actually allowed to happen is Tyler Shatley to move to left guard. That offensive line is already looking quite strong now. So you've got Cam Robinson on the left tackle. Jawan Taylor's clinging onto the right tackle job. It looks like Walker Little might take it off him. And Brandon Scherf came in via free agency. So it's almost a bit of a transformation. Of course, the the biggest importance of this is to protect their key assets. Trevor Lawrence, obviously, on the centre. And Travis Etienne will be coming back from a serious injury this year. So if they can solidify that offensive line with one day two draft pick, then I think it's they'll be very happy with the hole that uh, Trent Bulky's brought, brought in last April. When you look at what this team needs to do, what it needs to accomplish this year is to be competitive at times and take a step forward on offense and have their quarterback look comfortable and proficient and confident. And really, that would be a win. You know, I, I'm not sure anybody is going to sit there and project a high number of wins for the for the team, but that might not be the most important thing for this year. Some stability, and like you said, protecting their key assets. So as far as the offensive line is concerned, when you're talking about an offensive line that's underwhelming, that has some leaky spots, getting too decent is a big deal. You know, you don't necessarily need that to be the identity of your team. You know, it, it it's nice to have that, but it's not necessary. You just need to make sure that you're not letting through blitzes. You need to make sure that you're not totally messing up anytime you have a stunt and there's just a, a, a rusher right in your quarterback's face, right? Like that's, that's the stuff that you need to make sure is good. So a quality offensive line, especially with the addition of a day two pick that can actually come in and start reasonably well, that would be a major step forward. And as far as Walker goes, man, these two edge rushers will be forever tied together, right? And we'll talk about that probably briefly in the next segment as well, because there's a pair of corners that will be forever tied together based on how those two do versus the other two do, because you're choosing a bit more risk over a 
bit more floor, I guess, for both. So if Walker hits what they hope he can, what they believe he can, it's going to be a home run. It's going to be an absolute home run for them. And there's no saying for sure if it will happen. But I guess when you're getting, you know, perhaps towards the end of your tenure, if it doesn't work out, you might as well swing for the fences. So I, I, I get that. And I think they will be really big additions for the season. So let's hone in on the offense. Let's look at what Trevor Lawrence has around him in particular. You know, I'm not sure, again, even with the addition of Doug Peterson and some wide receivers, if if this will be a top offense. But whatever its peak is, whatever its ceiling is, if they were to hit that, what do you think leads the way? Well, it is a very interesting one. Doug Peterson, obviously, the hire of him, it, it, some people were, weren't really blown away by the hire, but it, what it completely does is add an, an air of, I don't know what the word is, it almost like it, you, you can trust it immediately you know it, it, <laughs> it might not be the, the full glitz and glamour you know he has he has some trick players up his sleeve as we saw in philadelphia but you know at the very least you're not going to have a car crash of an offense i think is mm-hmm. is, is the relief again it's that relief factor in jacksonville for, for um trevor lawrence they obviously did add some pieces and it was a big outlay on christian kirk which everyone kind of raised eyebrows at and rightly so mm-hmm. uh christian kirk himself obviously struggled to make an impact in uh, in preseason with a couple of niggling injuries and things like that. But uh, Zay Jones has come in and him and Trevor Lawrence have hit it off really well. So that's a good start. Uh, the return of Travis Etienne and establishing that run game is going to be crucial for the Jaguars. It's a quite a run-heavy division the tech, in uh, the AFC South. I think you, obviously you've, you've got Derek Henry and you've got Jonathan Taylor and the, the, the Damian Pierce, the kid from Florida, uh, raising eyebrows over in, in Houston. So, I think they'll certainly want to run the football. Have a one-two punch of James Robinson and Travis Etienne in that backfield. Again, that comes down to the offensive line, which we've already discussed. The bar just seems so low that they can't fail with this offense. You know, if they if they get to relative production, everyone expects Trevor Lawrence to take it at that step. And what we've seen in preseason so far, only three drives, but the first two drives finishing field goals. And whilst that was probably the what they planned to do, have them out for two drives against Cleveland, I think. Doug Peterson just went, no, get out for the third drive. Let's get this touchdown. And, Tre- and Trev obviously hit another acquisition, the tight end, Evan Ingram, in the back of the end zone for his first touchdown. It just looked like they're trying like, to build him his confidence up, take the leash off him a little bit. I mean, he did have quite a lot of interceptions last season, so there may be a bit of concern there. But, yeah, I mean, you look up and down this roster, they've spent some money on it, but it still doesn't scream elite talent outside of the quarterback, does it? That's the, that's the major concern. But as long we've seen plenty of offenses, as long as they, you know, within a good scheme, a good playbook, I'm pretty sure that this will be like night and day compared to last year. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you're getting the processing ability and the offensive mastery that you're expecting from Trevor Lawrence, if you really step back and look at it, however you want to compare it to what everybody else has done around the league, there's probably enough there offensively for them to be competitive. Right. If Trevor Lawrence is the guy that everybody hopes, they're they're not going to blow anybody away with what they have on either the line or the skill group. But there is enough there. We've seen good offenses run with less. The real question is, why do you only want to give your quarterback, your young quarterback, just enough? Really, the idea is you want to give him more, give him every opportunity to succeed. So, you know, I don't think that we should assume the worst of the offense, but I do think that it's, it's a reasonable question to ask if you could have done more. Oh yeah. I would, I would, I would suggest that it's, it's similar 
to when Peyton Manning came in Indianapolis. You know, it took them some time to find some pieces around him too. I think the difference, of course, is that nobody trusts Trent Bolton to do it. I think that's the only thing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a reasonable question to ask, right? And and I understand swinging for the fences, but you go into the draft this year and you don't take a first-round pick on the offensive side of the ball, even though you have two. Now, at the top of the draft, it's probably warranted because there was a defense heavy at the top. But, you know, to trade up for a linebacker versus a big-time playmaker, probably a slightly more questionable decision. But on that note, let's look at the defensive side of the ball. So they did bring in some draft picks. You know, you hit on Trevon Walker already. This is a defense that probably was slightly better than the average fan realizes if they weren't watching it all last year. Obviously, that didn't result in wins, but you can look and see enough there that that probably won't be like a major liability for the team. But if they were to actually be good, what do you think leads the way for that? Well, there's two interesting position groups here. I mean, the the turnover at linebackers been pretty impressive obviously Devin Lloyd was that other first round draft pick we, we mentioned earlier he's come in they brought in Foley Lucan from uh, Atlanta who had a cracking season last year and Chad Moomer uh, who was a third round draft pick a linebacker from Wyoming he's making noises as well in training camp so that's something that I think they're looking for in, almost immediate improvement from I think the run defense last year was some, a little bit susceptible um and obviously, Miles Jacks departed too. One of you know, a kind of a stalwart of, of the last time that Jacksonville was any kind of threat in the AFC. He was the last man standing. And um, but most people who watch the Jaguars will tell you that this front seven is quite spicy. You know, the, the defensive line, whilst it's not got any major names, obviously we've got the Josh Allen on one side, Kalevon Chase on is, is feeling more and more like a bust every day. But if you compare him with Trayvon Walker on the other, then you've got some heavy hitters playing the five techs like Roy Robertson Harris and. Adam Gotsis and Dwayne Smoot, some names that you, you probably, if they were on the Patriots team, for instance, you'd assume they were productive. But because mm-hmm. with the Jaguars, you may you may not think you know they're any, anything special. They've been blowing holes in, in preseason. They've been working really hard. It's, it's looking impressive. Like you say, there is not, not necessarily a standout group on this defense, but the talent level for in this time compared to this time last year is, is it's impressive what they've managed to do in a short period of time. Yeah, when you look at that defensive line. The the star power is definitely on the edges. You know, again, like you said, uh, Chase on a side. I don't know how that that's working out. Looks like not that great. I haven't really watched him in any preseason games or really watched his tape. So I don't want to just one thing I'd hate to do is just say a player is terrible without watching him. But all, all reports are that he's been pretty underwhelming. But, you know, you got Trevon Walker, you've got Josh Allen, who has flashed seriously at times and then the interior of the line it's really built more to stop the run I think they're they're looking more at they're looking more at using some of those tight odd fronts with run stuffers including Roy Robertson Harris who I like I liked him on the Bears I really did and uh Foley Fadakasi which again uh, is one of the better run stuffers in the league playing nose tackle for them and then you've got your pass rushers outside. But the, I think the thing is, if they want to have that mismatch inside as a rusher, then their plan is to just move Walker in, right? And maybe put a guy like Chase on on the outside. Maybe he's not your big-time threat. But if you've got Josh Allen and Trevon Walker, maybe even putting them on the same side at times and really messing with the numbers, I think that's their plan as far as pass rush goes. So I think they have some flexibility there. And the defensive line might be better than people expect because they've got guys who have very specific skill sets that correlate with each other. If you were to point to something that would that 
might hold back the defense. Let's say the pass rush maybe isn't quite as good as as you know we're projecting it in this particular situation. What do you think holds back that defense and limits what they could be? Uh, depth. I would argue depth's the biggest problem on, from top to toe on this roster. You look at the ones, you saw what they did against Cleveland, albeit they had an extra preseason game already in, in the bag and probably were a little more game ready than the Browns. They The ones tore apart, the Browns ones, and the Browns didn't leave a lot of players out you know it was an impressive performance at first but after that the depth is short you know you're looking at secondary Tyson Campbell injury prone but a very good cornerback and Shaq Griffin after that they're relying on a a seventh round draft pick in Monteric Brown I think who's probably going to be the next man up that Darius Williams being a nickel sorry I should have mentioned um safety Andre Sisko eventually took that starting job as free safety halfway through last season looks fantastic but Daniel Thomas backs him up Rudy Ford, who's fallen away a little bit. There's little depth in that in that secondary. And I know Jaguars fans are a little bit concerned about that. As you say, the edge rush, if you want to bring Clavon Chase on in, he is a, essentially a designated pass rusher at this stage now. He relies, like as you alluded to, he relies on people casting eyes elsewhere. You know, if, you, if you're going to cause disruption in the interior by kicking somebody inside such as as uh, Trayvon Walker, then he has an opportunity to make to make plays. But for someone who was a first round draft pick, that's pretty low ceiling. So they are they are concerned about depth. I would argue that's probably what's going to hold them back a bit because as as we know, every team suffers injuries, and the Jaguars aren't impervious to that either. So if it happens on defense, they may be able to ride it out in spots. Offense, less so. I would argue they've certainly on the offensive line. They're they're going to be weak if they if they lose a couple of people, and. And I think the front office and I think the coaches have to know it as well, as we've mentioned already, because the bar is set so low that they don't particularly seem too worried about it. Because, well, I mean, as we'll get to in a bit, we're predicting how many wins they're going to get this season. Um, I don't think many people are going to have them hitting the playoffs. Yeah, I would say it's probably pretty unlikely. You know, even if they do exceed expectations, playoff bound is probably not the case. Just like you mentioned. Injuries are a key part of what makes a uh, a lesser team quite poor, right? If they're very fortunate with injuries, they're probably, I don't know, maybe around 800 for the season. I always say 800. I don't, I don't know why it comes to mind. 500 for the season. Even if they are around 500 for the season, they are probably like really maxing out their talent at that point because of the youth, the turnover, and the fact that we're just projecting a lot of development from some of these guys and some injuries to some key spots will put them in a situation where they probably cannot compete on a week to week basis. And we'll have one of the higher draft picks in the, in the draft this coming year again. So if you were to put a number on it, not 800, <laughs> uh, if you were to put a number <laughs> on it for what you think they might be able to achieve as a record this season, what, what do you think is the most likely? I mean, it's a funny old division. There's there's opportunity, but there's also, you know, you're talking about the number one seed in the AFC last year in that division. You're talking about a well-built Colts team. Uh, you'd imagine the Jag- Jaguars would expect to compete with the Texans at this stage. I mean, if they double their win total to six this season, I think that's realistic, and I think they'd probably take it. So I would say six, maybe seven wins at a push is, 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 is what the Jaguars are looking for this season. It shows significant progress from the from the car crash that was 2021 and it also stands me in good stead for maybe another tilt the following year in, in year two of the Doug Peterson regime so give give me seven wins if I'm feeling optimistic <laughs> yeah I think that's pretty fair and 
a lot of the criticism that the Jaguars have received this offseason, I think is it's fair on one level, but it also is probably heavy handed when you look at it from a different perspective. I think if you really look at who they added, the players that they brought in, what they've done to improve the team, I, I don't think you can really criticize that much. The main issue that I see with it is just the amount of money that they've spent on those particular players, right? It's more about what you've invested to get those decent players on the roster. Like, I'm not going to point at any single player and say that's not a good addition, but I would just say that when you're trying to shotgun fix a team like that, sometimes you end up overpaying, you know, and there's opportunity cost in that. And I think... Hmm opportunity cost is something you always have to consider in a league where you have so few assets, right? Like you have the same assets as everybody else. So anytime you overspend, you're just putting yourself in a slight disadvantage. Of course. And maybe ultimately they don't care this year just because they're just trying to get a little bit better at a time. But that is something that could come back to bite them in the end, potentially. Well, I say so. Yeah. I I would just mention that being the Jacksonville Jaguars and attracting people aside from, you know, the, the financial benefits of playing in Florida, the nice weather, you know, if players want to win, they're not going to, they're going to have to pay more money to try and get them to Jacksonville. This is the current climate, I guess. I mean, you can raise your eyebrows, but I mean, I guess they're, they're a victim of their own, of their own uh, poor performance for the last few years. Yeah. And we've seen that happen to teams all over the NFL that have been bad for a long time. Um, and hopefully this season, is the the season that kind of turns that mentality around and that people will be willing to go there. So we'll see. We shall see. Only time will tell. And I'm curious, just like everybody else is, to see what Trevor Lawrence becomes and, and if that team is finally one of those turnaround stories, one of those feel-good stories that you know every fan base is waiting for, whether it's been the Browns or whether it's been the Jets or whether it's been you know the Raiders. All have struggled quite a bit at times and... I think every single one of those fan bases feels relatively good about where things are, if not, you know, fully confident. So let's see if the Jaguars can enter those ranks. All right, Simon, I want to thank you so much for coming on today, for staying up late in the UK to talk to an American across the sea. And why don't you let everybody know where they can find you? You know, you have your website, so tell them about that again. And of course, where your social media is. Yeah, you guys can follow me on Twitter at NFL Draft Sci. That's where I started my love for the NFL, so that's my, why my handle is NFL Draft Sci. Uh, and yeah, feel free to check out uh, the touchdown.co.uk. It's it's a, got an international readership. It's not just for the for British people, so it's a it's high 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 level content written by uh, many Brits, but also some Americans. Uh, we've got some American writers as well. So we cover the draft, the college football, we cover NFL, fantasy, everything you name it. So check it out. Beautiful. We'll see you again very soon. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, welcome to the Houston Texans segment of the podcast today. Now, if you are listening to this, we are on a bit of a fallback plan. Now, originally, I was supposed to have Lance Zerline on for the Texans. We're going to talk about some Houston football, but we've had some bad weather in Texas. I can attest to that being in Austin, some torrential downpour on a rather uh, arid landscape has led to some flash flooding, which is not uncommon. looks like we missed our window. So, I have Dave Guberman on to talk some Texans with me. Now, 
Obviously, being a Tennessee fan, he's going to do his best to keep his bias to himself. He's not going to go too hard on the Texans. We're going to talk about the Texans because, you know, we've got to talk about every single team, of course, on the AFC South podcast episode. But it's unfortunate that we couldn't have who we originally planned. It is what it is. So, first of all, Dave, thanks for being on the third segment of the day. I appreciate you for coming in in the clutch. Um, I'd ask you how you're doing, but I think we've already done that like twice. So (laughs) (laughs) let's jump right into the Houston Texans. Okay. So the Texans are a team that we talked about this. You can give me your stat, but they are the lowest team in the league in terms of their odds to make the Super Bowl or to win the Super Bowl. Remind me what those odds were, because I think it's a pretty good, uh, you know, pointer of exactly what to expect from the team this year. Yeah, no, I think this kind of just shows where they are and 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 that where they are in they're in a clear rebuild where they're actually 250 to 1 to win this year's Super Bowl and no other team in the league has uh longer odds than 150 to 1. So they are head and shoulders above the rest in expectations going this year and being a potential bottom feeder of the NFL and especially their division as we move into the season. Yeah, I think this team is kind of where some of the others were last year, right? Like the Jets going into last year, there was a lot of optimism surrounding that 2021 rookie class, but realistically, the expectations weren't very high for them to have a good season. So we're looking at the Texans in kind of the same light. Expectations for the season are low, but overall optimism, I think, is as high as it can be in the situation, right? You got a bunch of draft picks over the next few years. You had a very talented rookie class come in this year. So the foundation is starting to be built and we can only look forward. That being said, you know, we always talk about the two biggest acquisitions for a team when we're doing these uh, season previews. And I don't think you can look any further than the two first-round picks that the the Texans made this year. Now, you know, that might be a cop-out in any other situation, but they really haven't signed any notable free agent in the past two seasons. So the draft is really where all their talent is coming in through. So obviously, third overall, they had Derek Stingley Jr., and 15th overall, they had Kenyon Green, the corner from LSU and the guard from Texas A&M respectively both incredibly talented so my thought I want to start with Derek Stingley Jr. so initially when that pick was made it kind of stressed me out a little bit because they need talent so badly that it kind of felt to me like they should really be looking at maybe more of a sure thing right obviously he's incredibly talented incredibly talented but as I've studied the team building process a little more even in the past few months and in particular listening to the GM journey with Thomas Dimitrov which I really enjoy he goes around to all the different GMs and they talk about their team building philosophies and one thing that came up a lot more than I really expected it to was aggression in and, and going out and taking big swings on players now there are differing schools of thought on that but the more I heard it the more I could at least see that angle, the more I could see that perspective. I mean, let's be honest. I know Sauce Gardner went to the Jets at four. Great player. But if there is a player in the past, I don't know how many drafts 
that actually has the real like talent to be a Darrell Rivas type of player, it's actually Derek Stingley Jr. I mean, the 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 power and strength and physicality he plays with, the speed, the technique, you know, and the ball skills, that all screams Darrell Rivas to me. Like, you know, Sauce Gardner's great, and I know that people make that comparison, but the reality is that Stingley's more that type of player. Now, the injury history with the Liz Frank and everything is scary to me, you know. That's that's kind of like a red alert injury type thing from college. So I, I, I don't know how comfortable I am with it really, but ultimately he's the big swing. Like he's the guy that could be the best corner in the league and hit by his sophomore season type of thing. So I get that. What are your thoughts on Derek Stingley Jr. Dave? Yeah. I mean, I kind of, I, I agree with kind of all your thoughts and kind of what you were saying about Stingley. Um, I think his, his ball Hawk skills, I think stand out more than anything. And I mean, he was compared to guy, a guy like Jalen Ramsey coming out of LSU, similar to the, the Derwin James situation the past couple of years is availability and health. Um, Stingley only played in three games for LSU last year, and he's only played in 10 games in the last two seasons. So a little, a little bit of an unknown, a little bit of unsure about his health and his availability. But if he can stay healthy, I think kind of, kind of you hit the nail on the head with his potential and kind of the physical tools that he has are undeniable and I think he is going to be a big piece of their rebuild as they move forward. I know we are years removed from this team having star players like DeAndre Hopkins, J.J. Watt, and Deshaun Watson. So all those guys are gone. So they need star power. They need star power, not just on offense, but on defense. And I think that Stingley is their first shot and their first attempt to get some star power on that defense. So it is kind of like you said, more of a big swing, especially to, to more of an unknown, not an unknown player, but a player who has had not many game reps and not many, not much game film from the last couple of years at LSU. But as I said, his ball hawk skills in man and zone coverage is, is undeniable when he is healthy. So I think he's going to be a big part of their rebuild over the next couple of seasons. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think the argument really is that it's so easy for armchair GMs like myself to sit back and say, look, you should always go for the analytically driven decision uh, because over the course of a, a number of years, it will come out in the wash and you'll probably be better off in total. But the reality is most GMs only get one opportunity to be in that chair, right? And it might only last for a few seasons. So you might as well go all out. I mean, this is the argument and I, I, I get it. I'm not making the argument right now necessarily, but you might as well take the swing, go for the player you think can change the entire dynamic of your team and, and, and try and, build that roster as best you can as fast as you can instead of taking that patient approach. So I, I think it's definitely two sides of the coin. Now, I think, you know, they've stepped back and kind of done the opposite of that a little bit with Kenyon Green, right? I think interior offensive line has one of the highest hit rates when you're looking at draft picks in the top 15 or so. You know, when you take those guys, they might not necessarily end up being all pros like Quentin Nelson, but more often than not, they do work out. You don't have a high bust rate. So I guess that might be their way of kind of saying, look, we will 
go a little bit more on, on the reserve side for that second pick. And I think that's going to be a big deal for a team that runs the ball a lot. You know, they're hoping to take some of the pressure off second-year quarterback Davis Mills, a road grader like Kenyon Green, theoretically should do that for you. Yeah, and I, I think kind of like what you said, David Culley, their head coach last year, was committed to the run game as, as they moved last year, even maybe more so than some people would have liked in a pass-heavy league, in a league that prioritizes quarterback play and pushing the ball downfield. They were committed to running the ball. So I think Kenyon Green can come step in. I know they're expecting him to give them a physical, um, in, uh, imposing presence on their D-line to move people and create running lanes for guys like Rex Burkhead and their new acquisition, Marlon Mack, who they got from Indianapolis. And I know that they're expecting um, big things from Damian Pierce, who they drafted in the draft this year, I believe in the fourth round. So who might take over the starting job midway through this year. So that's a big part of their offense. I know that um, their offensive coordinator, Pep Hamilton, he uses a lot of strong zone run blocking schemes. And he actually spent last year as Houston's um, passing game coordinator. So now he's been elevated to their offensive coordinator position. So I know that they're still looking to kind of keep some of the aspects that they that they stuck to and were committed to last year, kind of like what you said, to help take pressure off Davis Mills. I know they want to give him a fair shake and a fair shot to prove that he can be a franchise quarterback. He had some rough starts. He had some rough moments in the early portion of last year. But as we progress into the later, the latter half, up 2021 he really showed some flashes and showed some signs that he could be a cornerstone and he could be a franchise quarterback as we move forward um, which he showed in big wins like they had over the LA Chargers in a in a shootout game against Justin Herbert that Davis Mills came out on top so he had some big moments he had some big games to show what he might be able to do as they move forward but they're going to need that running game. They're going to need that that power run game to help take pressure off of him. So I think that they're they're definitely kind of relying on that and going to stick to that as they move from David Culley to now Lovey Smith as their new head coach. Yeah, you know, I think Davis Mills, let's just transition right into the offense, right? So I think if, if we're going to have a good offense this year for the Houston Texans, it's going to operate through the run game. But Honing in on Davis Mills in particular, I think you've got to be really impressed with what he did as a rookie in a not great situation. And let's be honest, he's been dealing with not great situations since coming in as a big time recruit into college. Didn't really go well with everything around him. He ends up being a third round pick, gets to the NFL on debatably the worst team in football. And yeah, he struggles a bit early. But once he comes back in after, um, after I guess they sit, he, he played due to injury for Tyrod Taylor, then Tyrod came back, then they benched Tyrod, and then he played again, and he ended up playing well, and particularly the game you're alluding to. And I, I don't want to make any assumption that he's going to progress significantly, because anytime you assume, it's, you know, you're just setting yourself up for potential disappointment. But the reality is, a lot of the stuff around him is the same. You know, Pep Hamilton's there. Pep Hamilton uh, is a guy that uh, had... a a hand with Justin Herbert's early time in the NFL. He also had time with uh, uh, Andrew Luck, Andrew Luck's early career in Indianapolis. And I believe he was the offensive coordinator for Luck back in Stanford as well. So he's got a lot of experience with young quarterbacks, and I'm hopeful for them that they can put that together. 
when you look at what's around them, they don't necessarily have a talent-laden skill group, which is why I do think the run game is what needs to guide the way for them. Brandon Cooks is a sure thing, right? Every single year, he's going to go for about 1,000 yards. But we've also seen him go for 1,000 yards on an offense that didn't really do much outside of that. So even though he gets his, I don't think that he's a game changer, right? He's a good piece to have for a young quarterback. So they got to get that run game going uh, with Pierce and that offensive line. I mean, they got Tunsil at the left tackle. They've got Kenyon Green playing guard now. They've got a few other pieces that hopefully will provide anywhere from a stable to even above average offensive line. So for me, that's that's kind of what the offense lives and dies with. What about you? Yeah, no, I kind of see it the same way. Um, I know, and I know kind of you mentioned Laramie Tunsil. They they restructured his contract this offseason to kind of give them some more flexibility. So, and Brandon Cooks, like you said, is really pretty much their only playmaker on the outside. Actually, last season, no Texans player had more than 446 receiving yards outside of Brandon Cooks. So they are really strapped at the position and they really don't have much separation in their receiving room besides Brandon Cooks, who is a, a long-standing veteran. So I think their run game is going to be important, to, like I said, helping Davis Mills. And another thing that I would keep an eye out for this year is how, um, how Pep Hamilton uses some multi-tight end packages because they don't really have a star tight end or a kind of perennial starter at tight end. They have Brevin Jordan, um, who they can split out at receiver. And I know that they have um, 6'6", 258 Pharaoh Brown, who has the physical size and has has the physical tools, but he was also kind of the most penalized tight end in the NFL last year. So they don't have a lot of reliability or consistency at that position. But I think that it's going to be important to um, have a consistent run game and kind of establish the run throughout games and as we move forward throughout the season into October, into November. So I think how they use those tight ends and how they package them together in multi-tight end sets, I think might kind of dictate how successful their run game can be, which in, in turn will kind of dictate how much balance their offense can have and how much uh, pressure could be taken off of Davis Mills in his kind of second year as a starter. Yeah, and I think you have some potential in Brevin Jordan and a guy like Nico Collins. Those guys could develop into something as second-year players. I think it's a real shame that they don't have, you know, John Mechie the third. And, you know, first of all, obviously, awful situation for him to have been diagnosed with leukemia. And, I mean, it's a guy, not that it's great for anybody but for a guy so young it's, it's definitely heartbreaking and you hope that he can overcome that and for them as a team would have been really nice to have him I think he's a well-developed player who would have been a chain mover type of receiver and and, and have offered some consistency at uh, the receiver position now without that you are hoping a little bit more for for the development of guys like Nico Collins so we'll see and when you move to the defensive side of the ball I think when you look at that defense, it maybe becomes even more clear why they wanted to swing for the fences because you look across it and there's, unfortunately, there's just not much there. Jonathan Grenard is a good pass rusher. He's developed into a good player. And I, I think he's the kind of guy that we could see take even another step forward this year. So I like him a lot. But outside of that, 
I mean, there's just not much there. You know, there's just there's not a bunch of players that make big impacts week to week. So when you look at your defense and you see that that's what you're going to field, maybe you just want to take a swing on a player that can totally change the numbers. Because, right, one thing that's always lost in, in these conversations from analysts is that football is it's a numbers game and execution. And then there are certain stars who make impact plays beyond that but the reality is we're looking at numbers right so anytime you have a guy that forces a double team over and over and over again on the offensive line as a pass rusher that changes the numbers anytime you have a guy who just absolutely locks down somebody in coverage that changes the numbers it just changes the way you're able to play with the rest of the players you have on the field and that is what Derek Stingley Jr. is at his best he is a number changer he is he says i'm one-on-one and now you guys go play 10 on 10 and you don't have to worry about what's over here so i get why that move was made for a defense that just doesn't have that much otherwise yeah no i mean i hear you and i agree i mean kind of like what we were saying before they don't have a lot of star power they they don't have a single pro bowler from last season and and i think they showcased how much they need have needed to address their secondary we've already talked about stingley um and then their third pick of this year's draft was the 37th overall pick which they took uh safety jalen petre who i i know their gm nick casario says that he plays with his hair on fire and he's gonna have to come in and be a hybrid safety to help them in the passing game they they let up 20 plus yard pass plays at the third highest rate last year. They were blown out frequently. And here's another f- kind of stat that shows just how bad their defense was. They had a total point differential of minus 172, which was their worst season point differential in Houston Texans franchise history. So that kind of just shows how many big plays they were giving up and how how poor their defense was so addressing that in the draft was kind of they're pretty much their top priority and it comes with some unknowns especially with Stingley and and his availability and kind of not having a lot of a lot of game film from LSU the past couple years but they're going to need some of those young guys to step up and make big plays because as we've already said they don't have much else all right, that being said, we've given the Texans their due, I believe. I, I hope the Texans fans feel that way, you know. But now that we've completed our conversation, it's time for a little prediction, a pred- prediction of record. So what do you expect the Texans to do this year in terms of record, in terms of potential playoff berth? So, yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. And I know that most people, as we've already discussed, um, pretty much have the Texans right around the bottom of the league. So whether they can take a next step is remains to be seen. They're going to be relying on a lot of young guys this year, which we've already kind of talked about. Another guy that they lost from their defense was Justin Reed, who signed a big lucrative contract with Kansas City. So even less consistency, less reliable players that they have on that defensive side of the ball. It helps that they're not in the toughest division in the AFC, especially, but they do have 
not the easiest schedule. I pretty much I know that their their odds are or the odds makers have the have their over under for their win mark this year at four and a half, which is tied for the worst win total in the league this year. I think that they finish right around there. I think that they probably have another four win season. Um, I think that Davis Mills might have a couple good games. They might he might sh- even show some more consistency as we move forward over a longer stretch of time. But I just don't think that they have the horses, and I don't think that they have the star power on either side of the ball to really get more than four or five wins. So I think that we're going to see a repeat of last year when they went four and 13, despite the change of head coach, despite some of the moves that they've made and their new rookie pickups that they made in the draft, I think that they're still going to finish right around that same mark. So I'll give them that four and 13 record. Yeah. You know, I, I see a pathway for them to be a little bit better than that, but it's tough. It really is tough. You know, I think, I, I think the pathway for them to have a better record than around four or five wins it really does depend on how well Derek Stingley can play right off the bat. Because, again, that elevates their defense substantially. If we see a little bit in the way of rookie growing pains, or, God forbid, he does have another injury, then I think you have to be looking at that that four-win mark. So I'll optimistically say a little better. I'd put them at around six. But a lot of things kind of have to break right for that to happen. Dave, thanks so much. I appreciate you. We'll talk to you again very shortly once the Tennessee segment comes on. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the way that you step up and do everything that I ask of you for the podcast. So thank you. Yes, sir. Of course, I'm happy to be here and always happy to talk football whenever somebody can't come in or or you need to fill in. I'm always available and I'm always ready to talk NFL football. So thanks for having me on. I do really appreciate it. All right, everyone, I have two guests for this particular team, the Indianapolis Colts, both brand new, never been on the show before. First of all, I have Lawrence Owen. Lawrence has a channel called Colts Law, covering the Colts on YouTube, and he also hosts the Believe in Colts podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. We also have Noah Ashley, who writes for gridironheroics.com, covering the Colts, as well as Indiana University. Lawrence, how are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely wonderful. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. This is my first chance to host you. You know, you've hosted me a couple of times in the past, so I'm glad that we could get you on our show here. Noah, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. This is my first chance to uh, be on a podcast, so I'm really excited to uh, get my thoughts out here for everybody. Yeah, look, I love talking football, and the cool thing about this podcast is we have people of all different experience levels you know people that are just out of college just starting to do stuff like this and then we've had people who have been doing it for years and years and years like brian mclaughlin you know last week so it's a pretty cool format and i'm, I'm happy to kind of get a little bit of everybody so because we have both of you guys on today and we want to get into the colts and really get our thoughts out there and i'm going to jump right in so the first thing that i want to ask you guys are about the offseason additions for the Colts. Okay, so a lot of the key players are there. A lot of their stars have been drafted over the past few years, but there have been some big time additions. So I'm going to come to you first, Lawrence. Which would you say would be the most prominent player, the the most impactful addition that they've added this year? 
Oh, I think it's got to be Matt Ryan, uh, especially on offense, being that um, with the Indianapolis Colts, the size of their wide receivers, they, they're all 6'3", 6'4", up to 6'8". Uh, you need someone who's accurate and able to pl- place the ball in a very good spot for those guys. They're not someone that's just going to create separation uh, in that manner with speed. It's, it's mostly throw the ball, place it in a place where only those guys can actually get it. And Matt Ryan is perfect for that situation. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think one of those misconceptions around big body wide receivers is that they make the quarterback's job so much easier because they just throw it up and they go get it. I mean, there is some truth to that. It's probably more true in college. But once you get to the NFL, utilizing a player who has that size mismatch is really about getting it to where only they can go up and get it. And it actually requires more accuracy than a lot of people think. And I think a lot of Julio Jones's big time plays over the past, you know, decade or so in Atlanta were a direct result of Matt Ryan absolutely crushing that. Noah, what about you? Who would you say is the biggest offseason addition for the Colts? Yeah, well, besides Matt Ryan, who plays quarterback, passes the ball, that's the most important position in the NFL. I would say uh, adding Yannick Ngakwe at uh, the defensive end position would definitely be the next most important addition that we had. Uh, Ngakwe has proven that he can rush the pass, and that is something that the Colts have been lacking in the recent years. Yeah, Ngakwe is a pretty proven player, and and I talked to Owen about this before. The fact that he's bounced around to a few different teams is kind of unusual for a player uh, with such a proven track record as a pass rusher. Usually those guys are you know, snapped up and kept for a while, but he definitely does change the, the numbers a little bit for the Colts. I mean, their ability to get him in one-on-one situations where he can just pin his ears back and go is is something that they've needed. You know, they have other guys, they've got developing guys, but a guy who can come in in those situational moments and and give you an impact more often than not is something that I think is going to be key if they are going to make a playoff push this year. So let's hone in on the the offense in particular. So I'm going to come to you first again, Lawrence. I would like you to tell me, if you could, what do you think the strength of the offense is, right? So, you know, we saw an offense that wasn't bad last year. I think we're hoping for it to be a little bit better even this year. If we're looking at a top 15, top 10 even offense, what leads the way for that? No, it's got to be the running game. Uh, as, As big as the passing game is right now and the hopes of that Jonathan Taylor and this offensive line showed last year that they can carry this team offensively and they're going to probably lean on that again this year Jonathan Taylor is just a beast when it comes to uh, being able to break tackles and turn five yard runs into 70 yard touchdown runs so um, definitely leaning on that run game and that is by far in my opinion the strength of this offense Yeah, he's primed to take over as the number one running back in the NFL for the next two, three years. You know, running backs don't always necessarily have the longest prime, but they often hit their prime a little bit sooner. And Jonathan Taylor is about as powerful and as explosive as they come. So he's definitely their their biggest weapon, that's for sure. Noah, I'm going to make you go a little negative here on the offense. You know, if something holds them back, if, if you were to point to one aspect of the offense that maybe was the issue, if they're a little bit disappointing by the end of the year, what do you think that would be? Yeah, I'll go with a little uh, Michael Scott edge on it and say that their 
their weakness could be their really their greatest strength this season, and that's the the wide receiver core. There have been so many questions and criticisms of them so far in this offseason and preseason. But uh, the coaches in front office have um, really been adamant about how much faith they have in this wide receiver core. Uh, Every single one of them needs to step up in their own way. Uh, Michael Pittman Jr. needs to make himself an elite wide receiver, put himself up in the top 15, top 10, maybe even higher for the Colts to have success. Paris Campbell has to uh, lose the track record with his injuries, but uh, there's been a lot of uh, information coming out and interviews from him, and uh, I really like the mindset that he's bringing into this season. It's really, really positive, and uh, I know he can get through this adversity. Alec Pierce is a is a question mark who's been up and down through camp, but he's been uh, going up against Stephon Gilmore, so that's been a pretty good. Uh, person to go up against (laughs) yeah the wide receiver room for them is is definitely not as perhaps deep at the at the top as you would like for a playoff contender but we have seen a fair number of wide receivers be more impactful even as rookies or second year players in recent years I mean Alec Pierce is a guy who you know I I don't know if he's so well-rounded that he would be able to step in and be a number one receiver right off the bat if he's that that you know refined but he does have the physical attributes to do that at some point so hopefully you tap into a few skills that he does have which is getting deep and going up and getting the ball and he can kind of be your designated deep threat for the offense Um, I think the one of the reasons and again setting aside some of those guys that are just absolute monsters you know Justin Jefferson or Jamar Chase a lot of the receivers who have had that early success it's because they have one or two specific skills that they are very good at coming out of college and their offense puts them in the position to utilize those most effectively. So I think there is a pathway for them to be good, but there is a question there. There's no doubt about it. Moving on to the defense. The defense is undergone some transition, right? Matt Eberflus is no longer there. You bring in Gus Bradley. So there is a fundamental change in how they do things. Now, there are a lot of similarities for sure in the way that they, they operate, but new defensive coordinator, new mindset, new scheme. Lawrence, if there was something that you would say maybe keeps this defense from being quite as good as it was under Matt Eberflus, what do you think that would be? I think it's a tie actually. Um, there's the cornerback depth is a little bit on the question mark side. We don't know what we're going to be looking at, uh, if one of the starters goes down what, between the outside corners and the nickel. So we're a little bit worried about that situation. Um, and also the run defense, because you mentioned it scheme-wise, when it comes to the fact that uh, under Matt Eberflus, the defensive line wasn't really free to go after the quarterback nearly as much. They they stayed in their in their little spots to watch for the the scramble of the quarterback or the running back and under Gus Bradley, it's more of a go after the quarterback, no matter what, just go get them. And when you do that, sometimes run lanes open up and you could suffer some big runs in situations like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anytime you have a defensive line that's as attacking as Bradley's is, there's others around the league that have similar mindset. You really put a lot of pressure 
particularly on your linebackers and safeties to come up and and make those plays, fill those gaps and make those stops. So fortunately, we've definitely seen some good play from the linebackers and safeties for the Colts over the past few years, but we do want to see it in action. We want to see that new scheme in action uh, before we can be really, really comfortable with it. And it's something that might might not be perfect in the beginning of the year as they're still adjusting that that hopefully gets cleaned up as they get deeper into the season. So Noah, now you get to go a little bit more positive. What do you think would pave the way for this defense to be as good as it was under Matt Eberflus, even if it's a little bit different in style? Yeah, the different style bodes for the the pressure on the quarterback, but it also bodes well for something that the Colts have been good at for a little bit now, and that's their takeaways. The takeaway mojo is still here from last season, as we saw against the Bills with five total takeaways, plus um, some turnover on downs. Um, some of them were some bad throws or some tip passes from the wide receivers, but still takes a lot of skill and being in the correct position to be there for those tip passes. And they're ready to get the ball and uh, put the offense in a good position to score. Yeah, you know, you have to capitalize when those opportunities present themselves, right? You you have to be able to recover the ball. You know, if it's a fumble, you have to be able to get hands on it and secure it if it's a tipped pass or if it's just a poor throw you know so there is definitely skill involved in that and traditionally we've seen that turnovers are you know they have a pretty high variance so it's hard to count on them year after year after year be like a team leading the league or being at the top of the the league in that category but the Colts have been pretty consistent about it they've kind of bucked that trend of you know being up one year and down another year so I, I do I do think that if they're able to manage that again that will go a long way in getting the ball back to their offense and and uh, getting as many opportunities as possible so with that in mind let's talk about what the season actually provides now maybe the AFC South isn't the strongest division you know as it's widely speculated or maybe it's a little bit better than people think I mean that happens all the time we go into a year where people are saying that this is, you know, a very weak team, this is a very weak division, and then it doesn't really turn out like that, you know. So if they do have a more competitive division, perhaps, what do you guys think the final outlook for the season is, Lawrence? What would you say? Well, uh, floor-wise, and we're, we're going to discuss, you know, this as though injury it does not exist, right? Uh, I, I assume that's what it is. Uh, as as the roster stands right now, um, after uh, Andrew Ogletree's debilitating knee injury just happened yesterday, that was awful. I would say that uh, the floor is probably around nine, ten wins um, right there, pushing still for the division title. And I think the ceiling is probably around twelve. They still play some very tough teams coming into this season, especially when you're facing the entire AFC West and what they brought in this past off season. So that's, that's what I'm looking at. And the expectations is, is a deep playoff run is what I'm looking at. Yeah. You know, I think any, anytime you ask a question like this, you really have to assume no injuries just because it's the same assumption for every single team in the league. You know, obviously some years, some teams are hit harder, but it's not like you can really predict that. Noah, what about you? What do you expect from the Colts this year, if you could make a prediction? Yep, I have my prediction right right in the middle of Lawrence's floor and ceiling. Uh, I can see him going about 11-6. and six. I, I can see them dominating the AFC South, only losing one game to Tennessee. But that, that doesn't go to say that the Jaguars and the Texans can't compete because with the change of the Jaguars coaching staff, I think they can really 
make a push to become a better franchise than they have been previously. And like Lawrence mentioned, we have some we have some tough teams on the schedule. Kansas City in week three, Denver in week five. I think Russell Wilson will have it figured out by then and really be cooking like they say. But uh, other than that, yeah, 11 and six, I think, is a is a good goal for the Colts to possibly win the AFC South and uh, get some home games in the playoffs. Yeah, they've been hovering right around that uh, leading the division and 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 getting into playoffs and, and winning in the playoffs. They've been right there, right there. So I would love to see them uh, have a little bit more success in, in once you get to the postseason in particular. All right. Thanks, guys, so much for joining me today to talk about the Colts. They're a really, really interesting team to me. You know, they've made some changes in some really key places, and and hopefully that's enough to put them over the top. Lawrence, I'd love for you to give everybody where they can find you, whether it be social media or your YouTube channel or anything like that. Well, you can find my um, Believe in Colts podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts, including like TuneIn Radio, SiriusXM, stuff like that. Uh, also on some uh, actual radio stations with some interviews occasionally, especially when we're getting ready to go up against uh, teams this season. Uh, social media, Twitter, Instagram, it's at Colts underscore law. And then on YouTube, uh, it's YouTube slash C slash Lawrence Owen. It's very easy to find or you just type in Colts law. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, truly. And Noah, what about you? Where can everybody find you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. It's been a great time. Thanks for having me on with Lawrence. Lawrence is a great Colts content creator. Really like his stuff. Uh, anybody can find my articles at gridiron, gridironheroics.com. And uh, you guys can follow me on Twitter at no ashtray sports or no ashtray sports. <laughs> okay, awesome, guys. Thanks again. And we'll see you both very soon. Right. It hasn't been very long, but I'd like to welcome back Dave Guberman to talk about the Tennessee Titans. Dave was here to do the news with us, obviously. You just heard that. And we're going to talk about now the team that he covers for gridironheroics.com. Obviously, if you have been listening, you know that Dave is also one of the game recappers with me. He did preseason week number one this past week. We're going to do preseason week number two this upcoming week, along with Eric Hitch. And we're going to go headfirst into the season coming up. But today, we get to focus on your favorite team, Dave, the Titans, the team that won the AFC South last year, didn't have quite the playoff run this past year as they had previously, but they're looking to kind of reload, get back. So first thing I'm going to ask you is, who would you classify as their two biggest offseason additions for the 2022 team? So, first off, thanks again for having me, Max. I know it hasn't been long since we discussed the breaking news of this week, <laughs> but I'm ha- I'm happy to be back on to talk about the Titans and the AFC South, maybe one of the lesser talked about divisions in the AFC, but still to me one of the most important divisions in the AFC. So, as you said, the Titans did win the AFC South last year and actually was their, um, they won back-to-back AFC South crowns and they finished as the number one seed as well in the AFC. And they had some big, big things happen over the offseason, including the trading away their star receiver, A.J. Brown, to the Philadelphia Eagles on draft night. So they've had some things changing they've had some mix-ups and some new pieces that they're going to have to put together and they're going to have to 
kind of find and gel and get chemistry with Ryan Tannehill and their and Derrick Henry obviously returning. But I would say their two biggest acquisitions are right along that vein to help replace AJ Brown and Julio Jones, who was kind of a disappointment last season due to a lot of due to injuries that kind of cost him most of the 2021 season. So that would be Traylon Burks, their rookie first round pick, who is essentially supposed to replace AJ Brown. He coming out of the draft, a lot of his comparisons that a lot of the the scouts were making were to AJ Brown or a Debo Samuel type receiver. He is a master after the catch, at least while he was at Arkansas. So I know that that's big shoes to fill for for a young, unestablished receiver to replace a guy like A.J. Brown. But he's going to have a lot on his shoulders and he's going to have a lot of pressure to fill the shoes that have been left by A.J. Brown. And the second acquisition, I think, is a no-brainer. I think it is Robert Woods, their next receiver who they acquired from the LA Rams for a sixth round pick over the offseason. He is one of the best run blocking receivers in the league. I know he's coming off of a torn ACL last November, but he is going to be a big piece of the Titans offense this season, not only in the run game as a blocker, but in the run game as a rusher in the screen game, as well as in the passing game as a an additional target and security blanket for a guy like Ryan Tannehill. So those two receivers, and they're kind of building that chemistry with Tannehill, is, is probably going to be a big thing that dictates how their season plays out or how successful they are this season. I know they're a big target or a big, a lot of people are expecting them to take a step back this season after those losses to guys like AJ. It's hard not to take a step back when you were the number one seed in the conference last season. But yeah, I would say that those two guys are head and shoulders kind of having a lot on their shoulders and are are in big spots to either kind of repeat the success they had last year or as some people are predicting, have them take a step back um, with their passing game not being what it could be last year. Yeah, the the Titans are a team that I really have a love-hate relationship with. So there are certain teams, certain organizations where almost without fail, I love that that move. I love that move. That makes so much sense. I really see what they're doing here. And the Titans are one of those teams where I'm like, oh, I love that move. I love that move. I love the way they do that. And then there's this one thing they do, and I'm like, I just I just can't get on board with that. I just don't like it. And so, you know, last year getting Julio Jones was one of those moves. It didn't it I I understand being aggressive and trying to add that final piece, but to me, once you get into like the late offseason, or I mean you're getting into training camp or right before training camp, whenever it was that they acquired him you kind of already have the plan for your roster in place, right? Like you have your future plans based around what you've already done for that offseason. So spending that amount of money and that high of a pick on a player that we had just kind of seen start his decline, it just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. I, even though I kind of thought he'd have a better season than he did, I I didn't really like it from a, from a long-term planning prospect. You know, unfortunately it didn't work out. I didn't love trading away Julio Jones because I, I mean, uh, pardon me, uh, 
AJ Brown because I kind of felt like that could have been avoided if you had that second round pick to replenish the roster and you didn't spend that money on on Julio Jones last year. That's money that could have gone directly into the AJ Brown contract. So that's kind of full circle the way that I felt and what I expressed last year. Conversely, I really love a lot of things that they do. I love their head coach. I think Mike Vrabel is an awesome coach. I think he's a really good game manager. He's a gamer. He is a motivator. I mean, I, I think you'll always be in good hands as long as you have him. So, you know, that being said, I totally agree with you. Between Robert Woods and uh, <clears throat> Traylon Burks, these guys are going to be getting pretty much all of the starting receiver reps, right? And even though the offense flows through Derrick Henry, they're going to be the biggest number two and number three piece of it. And if you don't have Derrick Henry at any point during the season, they're going to have to win you games. So I'm fully on board with them being the biggest additions. Now, let's since we're already talking about the offense, let's stay there. Why don't you give me what you think the strength and potential weakness for the offense would be, right? So we've seen a tremendous offense. We know it runs through Derrick Henry. And it probably isn't that hard to give me what you think the strength is and what will guide the way for a good season offensively. But once you touch on that, also present what you think might hold the offense back if they don't have as good a year as last year. Yeah, sure. So, and I like kind of like you said, I don't I don't think we need to overanalyze this or turn this into rocket science per se. The strength of the offense is King Henry. It is Derrick Henry, and it is still Derrick Henry. So he is the most important piece. Everything else kind of um, is an offshoot or is a is a byproduct of how successful the Titans' run game is. Like you said, Mike Vrabel is a great coach. There's, it's no it's no mistake that he won Coach of the Year last year in helping the Titans get the one seed, even without Derrick Henry for the last half of the season, even by setting an NFL record using more than 91 players last year due to all the injuries that they suffered to guys like Henry and AJ Brown and, and a lot of their defenders, especially on the back end. So everything starts with Derrick Henry. And I think that a lot of people have, have attributed Ryan Tannehill's success the past couple seasons to having Derrick Henry. But I think he showed that he can hold the fort down and he can be a solid, capable starting quarterback, even without Derrick Henry. I know that Tannehill is sometimes very reliant on the play action. So a lot of times, and that's, that also starts with Henry. They want to get the play action passing game going. That is a huge component of their offense. But that starts with Henry. And I think that something that could hold them back is something we've already talked about, losing a guy who I loved, who I was one of my favorite players, who was a gamer, who was a baller in A.J. Brown. Replacing him is no easy feat. And I think that if they're going to take a step back or if they're going to have something that holds them back, it's going to be their receiving core. And it's going to be Tannehill's ability to not just not just be successful in play action situations but push the ball downfield that's something that they've had troubles trouble doing in certain situations especially against the Bengals in the playoffs last season so they have had to work really hard and be really smart and disciplined to 
bring drives together and to manufacture yards and kind of make those points, put those points on the board. So I think that Tannehill needs to be able to push the ball downfield and those chunk plays, I think could be something that holds them back. But I think if he's able to take that step and build that rapport with new ads, like another one we didn't talk about is Austin Hooper, the tight end from Cleveland that, that they acquired in the off season with guys like Hooper and Burks and Woods, they're going to, that's going to be essentially dictate their season and how successful they can be in kind of those chunk plays and whether they can manufacture yards outside of Henry or the play action game, but also deep and down the field. Yeah. And, you know, I think AJ Brown did such a nice job of, of creating those, uh, those big chunk plays, those explosive plays. And so even though you compare Traylon Burks to AJ Brown, there are a lot of similarities physically, but downfield stretching the field and, and getting deep it's there's not a guarantee that that is going to translate directly at least not early in the game for for Burke so we'll see how it goes I think that does sum up the offense pretty nicely so let's take a look at the defense then this defense is I think underrated I I know that statistically they're very good but I feel like people don't talk about this defense in the vein that they should now another Another thing that I said last year that I wasn't really in love with was the signing of of Bud Dupree. And I specifically said because I expected Harold Landry to have a season that kind of took another step after what he did in 2020. Sure enough, he had a very good season and they had to pay him. So it's it's I feel like they actually got a pretty good deal done with him. But now you have an expensive player in Bud Dupree when you probably didn't really need him as your second guy. The Julio Jones thing. And it just... It, I, I'm sorry if I harp on it, but it's just such a shame because A.J. Brown was actually my favorite of that 2019 class of wide receivers. So to me, it's like I couldn't believe they traded him when the news came down on draft night. And I still apparently haven't quite gotten over that yet. And I'm not even a Titans fan. I was going to say, you can imagine <laughs> how I feel with A.J. Brown. I'm still not over it. So, yeah, you know, it's a shame. But you know what? I mean, I do think that they can bounce back. We'll see how quickly it get, get that goes. But again, defensively. Very good, right? Harold Landry, Jeffrey Simmons, and Simmons is one of the best interior defensive linemen in the entire NFL. Like he is an absolute beast, and he makes things easier for the guys on the outside. You know, you've got quality linebacker play. Yeah, maybe uh, Rashawn Evans didn't become exactly what you hoped, but you were able to get uh, Zach Cunningham. You know. Uh, on the fly last year he's a solid linebacker kind of shores up the interior and then you've got good corners you got Kevin Byard you've got uh, you know some developing guys I think the first round of the draft has been kind of a, a challenge for the Titans over the past couple of years but they've still been good regardless so now that I've given my thoughts I guess and kind of set you up there why don't you let me know how you feel about the defense? What do you think the strength is? And again, a potential weakness if they don't have the same level of season that they did last year. Yeah, sure. So kind of like what you were saying, I do agree with you in that their defense is pretty underrated. Um, I think that three, four, five years ago, the strength of their defense was their secondary and they didn't really have a great pass rush. They didn't really have a good front seven. Um, and in the past two seasons or so, that's pretty much flipped. So, and that kind of showed itself in the Bengals playoff game in Nashville, where the Titans front seven terrorized 
Joe Burrow. They sacked him nine times in that game and somehow still found a way to lose the game. I still maintain that the better team lost that day. Thanks, with no help from Ryan Tannehill, pretty much choking the game away with his three interceptions. So their front seven with guys like Bud Dupree and Harold Landry on the outside, they have really kind of taken the reins and become the strength and become what that defense harps on and kind of what that defense has been known for the past two seasons, one season or so. Um, especially with Harold Landry's development as an edge rusher, adding guys like Danico Autry and having Jeffrey Simmons kind of become made probably the best D tackle in football outside of Aaron Donald. So, and he's going to be due for a a hundred plus million dollar contract, which may have been in their mind when they decided to to trade AJ Brown, which we know was a money move to save money and save cap space perhaps knowing that they have to pay a guy like Jeffrey Simmons, who is indispensable on that defensive line. So that is pretty much their strength. That's probably going to be their strength as we move forward into the beginning of this season. I think the weakness or potential unknown is definitely more in the back end and in the secondary. They Their safeties are on paper, some of the best best in the league, Kevin Byard, an all-pro safety at free safety, has been a shining star for the Titans the past four or five seasons. And I know that they are looking for Amani Hooker to take that starting that spot next to Byard. And he has shown signs that he could be an all-pro safety or Pro Bowl caliber safety as well. But really, their corners in guys like Caleb Farley, the rookie from last season who tore his ACL, um, early in the season last year, and Christian Fulton, the corner from LSU, who's going into his third season this year. That's pretty much the unknown. That's pretty much how are those guys going to produce? How are those guys going to showcase their development as they move forward into this season? So their corners and their pass coverage are going to be the unknown or going to be what could potentially hold them back. I know that they're relying a lot on their front seven to get pressure and take some of that pressure off the back end, but that's kind of how I see their defense and how I see it it may be playing out or kind of how that might dictate how good they are on that side of the ball in 2022. Yeah. So I haven't really like kept tabs on, you know, how Caleb Farley has looked coming back. I don't know, know exactly where he is in that recovery process. I know Christian Fulton, was his first year playing last year because he, I believe he missed all of his rookie year. Uh, So, you know, he probably had some up and down moments, but one move that I simultaneously love, but also makes me a little bit pessimistic at the same time is Roger McCreary in the top of the second round. I love McCreary. Okay. So he's a little small. His arms are a little short. That guy is so sticky in man coverage. His change of direction is unreal. Like I've, I, it's crazy to see what he can do going from moving full speed, one direction to turning and going full speed in another. It's crazy. But what that tells me with them trading back out of the first round and taking him with that high second round pick, that tells me they need a starting corner, which tells me they don't have a lot of confidence in Farley coming back anytime soon, or at least being a consistently uninjured player. 
So you tell me what you what what you think. Am I reading that right? Because I love the move, but it doesn't really show a lot of faith in what they already had as their two starters. Right, right. And I, I think I kind of see it more. Well, well K- Caleb Farley and Christian Fulton, they're both back and they're both fully healthy. So they have been starting uh, in the Titans last preseason game. Um, they they have been getting most of the reps in, in practice and against the Ravens last week. So I think the way I see it is it was a needed knowing that they have unknowns. Like I said, they have guys who they don't know how they're going to produce. They don't know how reliable, like kind of like you said, the best skill or the best the best thing you can rely on is availability and health. And Fulton and Farley have had injury concerns very early in their career. So I think adding a guy like McCreary from Auburn, who is a high second round pick, I think is really to add depth and to add competition to that to that cornerback position. Um, I don't know if I would say that they don't have faith in Farley or Fulton to produce and take the next step and develop. But I think that adding McCreary adds much needed depth to the position. And I think that um, McCreary has already shown signs like kind of like what you were talking about before. And he is already turning heads in training camp and he's already showing signs that he could be a standout corner, even in his rookie season this year. So I think that added depth at the cornerback spot, especially with young, very young players who have had injury concerns, I think is is very important and something that, that they had to do kind of address in the draft for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's good to hear that Caleb Farley looks good. It just, you know, to me, adding depth is one thing, but using a top 40 pick for a guy that you, that, you know, you don't necessarily plan on starting for the next couple of years. Maybe look, and maybe it'll work out perfectly, but it just, it, if it does work out perfectly, that probably means that one of those guys did end up getting hurt that that's currently slated to start. So we'll see. And I know that they have Elijah Molden, who's their starting nickel corner and he played pretty well as a rookie last year too. So definitely a lot of youth, a lot of youth in that secondary. And again, some fair amount of injury history, but I think, you know, best case scenario, they could be, you know, in the running for one of the best defenses in the NFL. So on that note, let's wrap it up. Why don't you give me your basic prediction for how the season goes? Maybe a, a, pr- a prediction on the, the record, if possible. And if you think they go to the playoffs, what kind of noise can they make? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to try to, like I said, table my bias as we move forward <laughs> and, do, and do a prediction per se. But they are in an easier division, which we've already discussed. Um, I guess we, we don't know how Trevor Lawrence is going to look with his second year in Jacksonville with a brand new head coach um, in Doug Peterson, and especially a guy like Davis Mills with Houston, who had a pretty good second half of the year last year. We don't really know what the Texans are going to be either. So most people do see this as a two-team race between the Indianapolis Colts adding Matt Ryan as their new quarterback and the Titans who are, like I said, the back-to-back defending AFC South champs. So schedule wise, division games are never easy, even against the Jaguars or the Texans. They're always hard fought, um, tough nosed games. I think the Colts can attest to that by losing to the Jaguars in a shocking loss on the last day of the regular season last year to miss the playoffs. So you never know what can happen in divisional games, but I think that the Titans have a great chance to not only win the division, but um, take a step forward and kind of um, make a run in the postseason. 
To be honest, I think there is a crucial five-game stretch right smack dab in the middle of their season, which is probably going to dictate how well they do this year and how their how their record plays out. Um, and those five games in a row are in Kansas City, at home against the Broncos, in Green Bay against the Packers, at home against the AFC champion Bengals, and then in Philadelphia to play A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts and the Eagles. So those five games in a row, I think, will pretty much sum up their season or sum up how how good they can be. So looking at their schedule, I really have them around the nine win mark, really nine and nine and eight, kind of hovering around that 500 mark. I'm hoping they get to 10 wins at least. So I, I'm going to say nine and eight is my unbiased opinion, but um, my bias is going to make me say 10 and seven just because I'm a super optimistic guy. So I think 10 and seven is a good spot. That could be good enough to win the division. If not, that should be good enough to get in as a wild card team. And then, kind of like we've talked about before, anything goes in a one game sample in the playoffs. So I think that if they're playing well in December and November, and and they're they have their guys at full strength, I think they have just as good of a chance as any team in the AFC to make a run to the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's fair. I think you're always going to kind of give the, you know, the, the I don't know, I don't know how to put it, maybe weigh the scale slightly in the favor of the teams that do have the elite quarterback play. But like we've seen teams go on runs when there is a player playing at an elite level. If they have Derrick Henry all the way through the playoffs and he's not hurt and he's 100% himself, there is really no reason that they can't go all the way. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how some of those younger guys play. We'll see how Traylon Burks holds up and all that good stuff. But, you know, overall, especially with the strength of coach, I think they are a real contender again this year. One more thing, if you want to kind of look to a stat or look to a number that might kind of dictate their their season or their games, more so than almost any other team, the Titans, if you look at their turnover differential in games, if they lost it, they would lose. If they won it, they would win. So I know that they don't have the elite quarterback play, but if Tannehill can be careful with the ball and not turn the ball over, especially in the playoffs, like I said, in a one-game sample, most of their games this year will probably come down to turnover differential and whether they can turn the ball over or force turnovers and because no other team really kind of had their games dictated by a stat more than the Titans did with turnover differential last season. So I think that's something to look at and kind of make sure that they're not losing that battle in games this year to kind of determine that success. Yeah. I mean, over the past few years in their best years, he has either led or been at the top of the league in efficiency at the quarterback position. So I, I get you. Dave, thanks so much for joining me. I really do appreciate it. Now, you were on for the news segment. You're on for the Titans segment. And possibly, we will see, you may even be on for a third segment today. We'll find out how that all shakes out. Uh, I do appreciate you. And um, let everybody know where they can find you on social media, etc., so that they know where to follow your work. Yeah, sure, of course. So if you guys want to follow me, um, you can find me at, um, at Dave Guberman at, on Twitter, 
or you can follow me on Instagram or TikTok as well, which is at D-A-G-U-B-E-R-M. Right on. Dave, thanks so much. And again, we'll see you very soon. If uh, not slightly earlier in this episode for a third time, then certainly Sunday night when we break down week two of the preseason. Thanks again. Yes, sir. Thanks, Max. Tighten up. As always, big thanks to everybody who made it all the way through the episode. A little bit longer today talking about the AFC South, but a good one nonetheless. Remember, I'm Max Dean. You can find me on Twitter at TheMaxDean. And the Gridiron Heroics Football Show is available anywhere podcasts are streamed. This coming week, we will be talking about preseason week number two before two episodes to close out our preview series on the AFC and NFC West. Thanks so much, and we'll see you guys very soon.